0: Alrighty, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in the, the book of Job, chapter one, and we're going to be looking at the first eight verses. Job chapter one, uh, the first eight verses, and the the title of our lesson this this morning is a unique man, a unique man, and I take the title. ...from a statement that God himself makes about Job. And we'll actually see this statement in the passage today. Uh, God says this about Job. Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? Now that's what unique means, right? Unique means one of a kind. It means there's nobody, there's, there's nothing else like it. Well, that's exactly what God says about Job. He is unique. Job is not every man. And and this is, in fact, this lesson, if I say, we're going to look back in a few months, and I'm going to tell you this lesson is one of the most important lessons that we'll have in Job. If you don't understand who Job is, you will miss the purpose and the meaning of the entire book. That's how important these first eight verses are. In fact, it's so important, as I said, we're going to spend uh, an entire lesson on it. So it's called Job, a unique man. Now, as we read the first four verses, we're going to find, uh, for first eight verses, we're going to find four things about Job. It's, it's amazing what the Bible can pack into eight verses. We're going to find four things about Job that make him unique, that that make him unlike anybody else on the face of the earth. Now, the first thing that makes Job unique that the Bible tells us is he is a blameless man. Okay, Look at verse 1. It says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, and he was upright, one who feared God, and turned away from evil. Okay, So the first thing that the Bible shows us about this man named Job as it introduces us to him is he is a very, very righteous man. Now, it, it is incredibly important that we don't downplay that, okay? Because this statement is so important. In fact, it's hugely important to understanding the whole uh, book and, and understanding the story that's about to be told. And, and here's why it's important. Because understanding the righteousness of Job, understanding how good of a man Job is. And, I, and I'm hope by the hopefully by the time I'm done, you'll have a completely different perspective of Job than you've ever had before. Recognizing how good this man is is going to save us from making a huge mistake. Okay? First and foremost, it will save us from thinking that somehow Job has brought all of this suffering on himself. Okay? You see, when we get into this book, we're going to see Job's suffering, and I'm going to tell you right now, is not a penalty for sin. It's got nothing to do with anything that he's done. It's not even a chastisement. The Bible tells us that God disciplines those He loves. That if you're kind of drifting a little bit, He'll discipline you and bring you back. This is not that. It's not a, it's not a penalty for sin. It's not a chastisement of if any type, shape, or form. You see, a lot of people who read this book, and you may be one of these people, you just assume, well, you know, Job was self-righteous, right? He he probably needed to be brought down just a little bit. You know, even the best of men tend to be fall into self-righteousness, and that's probably what was wrong with Job. And I bring this up because that's exactly what a lot of people think when they read this this book. They feel that somehow God selected. Yeah, Job was a really good man, but God somehow selected him because he had a little bit of self-righteousness in him, and God needed to show him that he needed to repent. Now, let me tell you this. When we get near the end of the book, we will find out that, yes, Job does repent. In Job 42, 5 through 6, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I've really seen you. And he says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So it is absolutely true that Job does repent. But some people go so far to think that this is what this book is all about. That, that no matter how good we think we are, that we should always see ourselves as God sees us. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That we all need to repent. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that statement. That statement is absolutely true. Yes, we should see ourselves as God sees us. Yes, we should understand that no matter how good we think we are, our righteousness is as filthy rags. But let me tell you guys, and I will reiterate this over and over, that is not what this book is about. This book is not about getting this man to repent. Yes, repentance is part of it, but that's not the theme of the book, not at all what this book is about. Now, my question would be, why would people focus on that? How can you read the book of Job and come out of it thinking, you know, this is all about repentance? Because I'm going to be honest with you, it's human nature, okay? The fact is, it's, it's almost ingrained in us that we reap what we sow, yes? Think about when you raise your children. Go back to the time that you were a kid not forget raising your own just remember the time what's the very first lesson that gets taught to you as a child you do good you get rewarded you do bad you get whipping right or discipline that's that's the very first thing that's taught to you your actions reap consequences good actions good consequences bad actions bad consequences yes that is the very that is that is beat into you and and pounded into you from the time you are a small child. So it's almost human nature that we reap what we sow. Good consequences, good actions. Bad consequences, bad actions. You see, the fact is we are exactly like Job's friends. When we get in this book, the person we'll all identify with is Job's friends. That's who we'll identify with. You see, we cannot imagine a world where... Some God would allow suffering for seemingly no reason. You got to remember, Job's friends don't know what's going on in the heavens. They just see a man that's suffering, and 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 there seems to be no reason, and they can't imagine living in a world where God would allow suffering for no reason. So therefore, they point the finger at Job and say, "You did something. Admit what you did. You got some kind of secret sin. You got something going on that that's." Because that's just human nature. It's not that they were different. We we shouldn't ever read the Book of Job and think, "Well, I would never be a, a Job's friend." No, we are Job's friends. That's who we are in the book. We because this this idea of reaping what we sow is just built into us, as I said, from a from a small child. But but right here at the beginning, the author goes out of his way to disabuse us of that notion that Job is reaping what he sows. Job is not reaping what he sowed. Job is a good man. In fact, he's not just a good man. He is the best man in the world. What did God say about him? There's nobody like this man. He is unique. He is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Now, I want to focus this morning on what God says about Job. The first thing he says about him is that he's blameless. Now, you got to understand something. This does not mean Job is sinless. Nobody's sinless. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We get that, right? But there's a big difference between being sinless and being blameless. Sin is vertical between us and God. If you go back and read Psalms 51, the Psalm of David, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's had her husband Uriah murdered. And then when Nathan the prophet comes to him and says you know, basically points him, his finger in his face and says, you, you, you didn't do right. David prays, and his prayer says this. He says, God, against you only have I sinned. He never said, I sinned against Uriah or I sinned against Bathsheba. He said, I sinned against you, I broke your law. See, sin is, is always vertical. Being blameless is horizontal. You see, as, as Job lived in his community, as he lived in his household, as he lived in his family and people are watching him, there's not a single person that could point at Job and say anything about him that was wrong. Nobody could point to Job and say he had some kind of moral failure. His reputation was absolutely impeccable. Now, we see this. Let me just explain this to you. We see this in the New Testament. There's an amazing scripture. Paul writes to Timothy, and, and Timothy is, is in his church, and Paul writes to him and says, Okay, you've got to pick some elders, Right? In that day, they called them bishops. It's it's a word for elder or overseer, like pastors or board members or deacons. And he says this, a bishop, an elder or an overseer must be what? Blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, and he must have a good testimony among those who are what? What does that mean? Outside the church. I, I read this article one time about a church. I tried to find it and I couldn't. But when they, I just thought this was the best idea I'd ever heard. When they choose elders for their church, and they've chosen a man, they will put an ad in the paper. They'll put an ad in the Walk of the News, and they'll say, does anybody have anything against this man? I think that's exactly what it says, isn't it? He must be blameless. He must have a good testimony among those who are outside. In other words, nobody outside the church should be able to say, uh, he cheated me in a business deal. He's greedy. He's a liar. Nobody outside should be able to say anything. In fact, look what it says. Likewise, deacons, let them be what? Tested. That's what this church is doing. They're testing. Anybody got anything bad to say about them? That's what blameless is. It's the idea of you, 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 your reputation is impeccable. Nobody's got anything against you at all. Well, that, was, that was joke. By the way, elders are to be blameless. Does anybody expect them to be sinless? Because if you're sinless, if, if, the, if the requirement is to be sinless, you're not going to have any elders, and you're not going to have any pastors, and you're not going to have any teachers. That's not, the, that's not the requirement. The requirement is blameless. Okay? So in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see being sinless and being blameless are two different things. And Job was blameless. His, his reputation, he's not sinless. Again, that's not the point here. Nobody's saying Job is perfect. We're going we're to hear a lot of things said in this book. And all the people in this book agree that men and women are sinful. Nobody in this book is trying to make a case or an argument that, that people are, are sinless. In fact, the very first thing that Job is going to do in this book is he's going uh, to uh, offer sacrifices for sin. For his children, so even Job understands people are uh, are sinful. So again, no one's disputing that, but that's not what the book is about. Job is a very righteous man. In fact, he is the most righteous man. When I say righteous, I mean he is in right standing with God. That's what righteous means. It's in he's in right standing with God. He is. If you look at all the people on the face of the earth, God picks Job and said, "There's nobody like him. He's not every man." He's not in the top 1%. He is unique. He is unlike anybody else on the face of the earth. Now, why is this important? Why do I keep making a big deal about this? Because at the very beginning of the book, one of the basic issues of suffering is going to be resolved. You see, this book is full of of, of arguments, debates, people discussing at length, why do we suffer? Why do men and women suffer on the face of the earth? That's what this book is all about. And Job is used as a case history to show us several things. I'll pick two. Number one, people suffer even when they are in right standing with God. Sometimes you go through suffering. It's not about sin. It's not about chastisement. You don't know the reason. That's what this book is showing. And it's, again, it's showing sometimes suffering is not the direct result of anything you've done. That's not always what it's about. It can be. But it's not, it's not always. And Job is picked to show that very thing. So again, to establish this, we're told right off the bat, look at Job, he is a blameless man, an upright man. He fears God, he shuns evil. Whatever happens to him in this book, he didn't deserve it. He didn't cause it. It's got nothing to do with him. See, this is why this test of faith in this book is set apart from every other test of faith we'll ever see because you've got the most righteous man on the face of the earth, a unique man, and he experiences the, the, the most extreme suffering somebody could ever have. You may have lost a child, he lost ten. I mean, nobody's gone through, but he is the most... Does everybody see the, the, the disparity? The most righteous man, the most extreme suffering. That's why there's never been and never will be a test of faith like, like Job. So there's four things I said that shows us he's a unique man. Number one, he's a righteous man. Number two, he is a prosperous man. Look at verses 2 and 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now remember, in that day and age, how many kids you had reflected on you how much everybody looked at that and said how much how blessed you were. You had a large family, especially boys. Everybody looked and said, "Man, you are blessed by God." That was a sign that God had blessed you. So he is he's richly blessed because of his kids, but not only that, he is very wealthy. Remember, in that day there's no dollar bills. They don't have currency, they don't have banks. There's they're they're probably not even trading in in precious minerals like gold. The, what you had, or a sign of your wealth, was how many animals you had. You were herders, your livestock. And the Bible goes out of its way to say 7,000, 5,000, you know, all these huge numbers of animals to show you just how wealthy he, he was. He is called the greatest man in the East. Listen, in his area, everybody knew who Job was. The man is famous. Okay. He is he is held in high esteem by everybody. You mentioned Job's name; everybody knew who he was. Oh yeah, everybody knows who Job is. So he is held in the highest esteem. Now, I want to jump ahead for a minute because I want to show you something. This man is he is the Bill Gates of the you know 3500 BC, right? He is filthy wealthy, and you may think, well, now okay. That's nice, right? I mean, it's not, you don't have a lot to worry about when you've got all this money. And, and I wonder how he used his money. And you, again, I'm trying to paint a picture of Job that you've never seen before. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to show you how he used his money. Job 29, 12 through 17. These are Job's words. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey. He took his money and he used it to help people. He, he gave it away to the poor. He gave it away to the, to the widows. One commentator said the words there, I was a father to the needy, says he literally brought people, he would bring orphans into his house and raise them as his own. And in fact, it says, I I searched out the cause of him. He would actually go out looking for places where people were mistreating the poor. And he said, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and and released them. So he spent his own money to, to make sure that no... I mean, there's nobody like this guy. In Job 31, 16 to 22, he says this, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or if I have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or if I've eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Job basically stands there in front of his friends and he says, If I have ever seen one person in need and not helped them, let lightning strike me right now. It's basically what he said. Now, This is a man who never passed by anybody in need and didn't help them. You want to know how he used his money? He's just constantly helping people. Listen, I read this wonderful quote this week. I uh, I just thought, thought I got to throw this in there. It says, money only makes you more of what you already are. Now, that's a lot of wisdom right there. Money just makes you more of what you are. See, Job, down in his deepest part of his heart and soul, is a righteous man. He's a good man. All the money just makes him better doesn 't make him worse doesn't make him greedy doesn 't make him any of those things it just makes him a better man because he uses it to help other other people so here 's job he 's more important he 's more wealthy he 's more influential he 's more blessed than any other man on the face of the earth and what does he do with all that? He helps people he gives it away he says i 've never seen a single fatherless somebody unclothed or, or or the widow, or anybody that I didn't help them. You see, Job really is a good man. See, we may read this and say nobody can be that good because we know we're not, and everybody we know is not, but Job was. Job was, what did God say? He's unique. There's nobody else like him on the face of the earth. Again, why are we told all this? We're told this because it helps us understand how severe this test is. You see, Job, Job is accustomed to comfort and, and wealth and prosperity and blessings, right? And when this suffering comes, can you imagine to him how unfair it's going to seem? You see, when people live in poverty, when people are grow up in deprivation, you just get used to it, don't you? Wherever you are, that's what you get used to. And so if, if suffering comes and you're used to that, you're just like, well... You know, this is just my lot in life, I just this is the way it is. But Job wasn't used to any of that. Can you imagine the shock, the shock when his way of life, is it, he goes from, you know, 100 to zero? Can you imagine? And, and, can, and by the way, can you imagine how unfair it would seem to him? He's so blessed and he takes all those blessings and he uses it for good and then one day, boom, it's like God is against him. And, and all of his great blessings are replaced by suffering. Can you imagine the shock to his system? Can you imagine how unfair it would have seemed to him? You see, you add that shock plus the unfairness, the temptation to curse God, could have it, it was huge. That's why this test of faith is, is unlike any other. All of that would have just added pain to his suffering. So, four things about Job that make him unique. Number one... He's a blameless man. Number two, he's a uh, prosperous man. Number three, and this just gets better, he's a family man. Look at verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, Job's sons, it seems like, are older. So they're all living out in their own homes and their own houses. And it says from time to time, and the phrase in here is on his day. That's all it says, okay? They would invite their brothers and sisters to come over to their house and eat with them. Now, it would be interesting to know what this means by on his day. It could mean, uh, it could be at a time of harvest or sheep shearing, which was a time of, of, uh, of, of feasting and celebration. It could be the, the weaning of a child or something like that. But a lot of commentators think that it means their birthday, you remember back in Genesis chapter forty when Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph was in prison, and it says on the third day it was Pharaoh's birthday. Do y'all remember that? So we know they celebrated birthdays even back during the time of the patriarchs. So Pharaoh celebrated his birthday. So they kept up with those things. So it very well could be when it says on his day that these brothers, it's on their birthday, they would hold a feast and they would invite the whole family. Now what I want you to see here. I don't know why it is we read these things and we look for bad. We're, we're cynical sometimes. But this is not describing anything bad. This is describing a close family. Listen, they are grown. They're living in their own houses. And when they have a celebration, guess what they do? They invite all their brothers and sisters. Listen, how many families here today, their brothers and sisters don't even talk to one another? Right? It wasn't that way with these guys. They're they're moved out and on their own, and they still enjoy one another's company. They act as though they're good friends. Let me tell you what this says about Job. Job is not a Jacob who shows favoritism to one son and not to the other. Job is not like that. He must have been an excellent father to raise ten children that are all in good relationship with one another and love one another and like to spend time with one another. See, the whole idea here is not to throw something negative in there, that they're over there drinking and eating. and all. No, it's to paint a picture of Job of how blessed he was. And to have ten children who like each other and like to spend time... I mean, as a parent, that's that's awesome. Trust me. When our children get along, man, that's a that's a blessing to us as parents. So, And there's no disapproval in the Bible at all about this life. There's no hint in the language that they were doing a bad thing there's no hint that they were a bunch of drunks or that they were licentious or they were lazy in fact i want you to look at the next verse verse five and i want to point something out it says when the days of the feast had run their course job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for job said and i want you to look what he said it might be that they've sinned right now let me tell you, if they're over there having a drunken feast, Job wouldn't say they might have sinned. It would have been a certainty, yes? If they were a bunch of lazy, licentious, he wouldn't have said it, it might they might have sinned. No, he would know they had sinned, but he didn't say that. He said they might have sinned. So there's no hint here at all that they're doing anything uh wrong, that they're that they're unduly given over to feasting and pleasure seeking. It's just a it's just a close uh, family. They're just brothers and sisters who enjoy one another's company. And this, again, the idea here is building up a picture of Job. Not only is he a righteous man and a wealthy man and a generous man, he's a great father. And his family and him are both greatly blessed. The fourth thing that we see about Job is that he is a pious man. So he's a blameless man, he's a prosperous man, he's a family man, and now the Bible tells us he's a pious man. Look at verse 5 again. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning, and he would offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, every time they would get together and eat and everything, Job would get up early the next morning, and he would offer sacrifices. And it says he did this continually. So he did it at least seven, eight, nine, ten times a year. Every year after year after year, he would be doing this for his children on the chance, (laughs) on the chance that they might have done something wrong. Not even any certainty, but on just the chance that they might have done something wrong. You see, as as a father, he is the head of the family. Not only from a, a standpoint of making sure their needs are all met, but as a spiritual head of the family. He's responsible to teach his family about God. He's responsible to rebuke them if they're heading down the wrong path. And as, a, as the high priest of his family, he would offer sacrifices on, on their behalf. Now, there's something really here about the language. When we see that language, curse God, it's kind of think, you're kind of thinking, wait a minute, what, what would make him think that they might just, out of the blue, just curse God and blaspheme him? Well, that's not really what that means. If you go back and, and look at the old Hebrew, the word literally means they may not have blessed him as much as they should have. Not that he's worried about him just blaspheming. He's literally worried that they didn't give him enough credit. See, he, he's worried that when they get together and they start talking about all they got, that they might take credit for themselves. He's, that's what he's worried about. And, and literally not give enough credit to God. Can you imagine a man that he, that's what you worry about your children? That they don't give God enough credit, not that they're blaspheming, not that they're no, they're, he's literally worried that they don't give God enough. What kind of man is this? I mean, he is a unique man. The point here is he's clearly concerned for his children's welfare. He clearly takes his his role as high priest of his family and spiritual head of his family. He takes it very very seriously. He is dedicated, and he is he is diligent. Now, I point you back to the statement that God makes. Have you considered my servant Job? There ain't nobody like him. There is not another man or woman on the face of the earth that's anywhere close to him. He is unique. He is a... So when we say, man, nobody could be that good. No, they can Job is that good. Now... At this point, we get a very, something very rare happens. There are places in the Bible where we see into heaven, okay, and we see angels. But it's very rare that we get to see God making a decision in heaven dealing with a person. In fact, I don't know if it happens really anywhere else in the Bible. So what happens here is the curtain is pulled back and we get to see what's going on in heaven. By the way, Job doesn't know this. Job's friends don't know this, but we do. And and what I want to point out to you is without these verses, if you took these verses, these next few verses out of the Bible, and we had to figure out on our own, why is all this happening to Job? Right? I mean, we'd be coming up with all kinds of reasons, just like his friends. Job, what did you do? You must have done something. But see, we're not left in the dark. We get to see things that Job and his friends didn't get to see. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, which the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser or adversary, also came among them. Now, the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament always refers to angels. Uh, In Genesis 6-2, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. In Job 38... Uh, talking about the creation of the world, it says, "...the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy." It's talking about angels. So it says here in Job, on this day, the sons of God, the angels, came before uh, God. Now, let me just, real quickly, I want to make sure, I, you know, I don't know who all's in the class and what we know and what we don't know, but let's just make sure we understand something. First of all, what are angels? What are these sons of God? Well, angels are heavenly beings... They are they are below God. They're not deity, but they are above man. We know this from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.6 says this, Let all God's angels worship Him. So angels worship God. They're not God. They're not on equal with God. They are below Him, and they, they worship Him. But in Hebrews 2.7, talking about Jesus, it says, You made Him for a while a little lower than the angels. So when He was incarnate on the earth when he was made human he was a little lower than the angels so the angels sit but between god and us as far as uh how intelligent we are and all of these other kind of things they're below deity but above humans now where did they come from well they are created beings psalms 148 2 through 5 says praise him all his angels praise him all his hosts let them praise the name of the lord for he commanded and they were created So at some point, God created all of these uh, angels. Now, a lot of people want to know, well, when were they created? Well, this we don't know. All we know for certain is they were created before the world was created. I, I, I mentioned this one a while ago, Job 38, 4 through 7. God is talking to Job and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So they were there. When it says, in the beginning God created, they were already created. They were already there. Now, were they created an hour before or a billion years before? I have no clue. We have, we have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us about that. All we know was that it came before the, uh, the earth was created. Other than that, it would, be, it would be conjecture. Now, what is their purpose? Their purpose is twofold. Number one, their purpose is to worship God. Roman, uh, Revelations five eleven through 12 says this, Then I looked and I heard ar- around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's millions, millions of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Every time we get a glimpse into heaven, we see angels worshiping God. That's number one of their purpose. Number two... In Hebrews 1, 13 through 14, it tells us this. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a rhetorical question, none. He's never said that to any angels. And then he tells what their purpose is. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Number one, their purpose is to worship. Number two, they are to set to serve and minister to you and I. That's their job. Not everybody, but look watch what it says, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are to serve Christians. That's what they do. Now that I don't I don't know any concept of guardian. You know, everybody loves this idea of guardian angel. I don't know anything about that, but I'm telling you, they are here and they are with us and they are serving us. I got no idea how. We won't know that until until we get to heaven, and we'll look back and hopefully be able to see all the instances when they when they served us but that's their that's their purpose. Now, the fact that Satan came among them shows us that he also is an angel. Okay? He is he is in no way equal to God. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. What can Satan do? What can Satan not do? You'll find out a lot more about this this next week. So, first of all, who is he? Well, just like all the angels, he is created like all the other angels. He's created as a holy angel. His purpose is to worship God. His purpose is to serve uh, Christians. But as far as we can tell, and there's hints, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics about this, but there are hints in the Bible that he saw his beauty, he saw how beautiful he was, he saw how, how, how great he was, and he became arrogant. He became very prideful. And he decided, I'm, I can be a god too. Now, one of the hints we're given is is in Isaiah 14. And uh, it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So he decides, I can be like, like God. Now, one of the most mysterious things in the Bible, and I have no answer for this. You know, I always wonder, why didn't God just destroy him? Or why didn't God just put him in in hell immediately? But God didn't. In his sovereign wisdom, he allows him to rule this world for a period of time. Why he does it, we have no idea why God chose that. But what we know about him today is he is an accuser. We see that in Revelation. He is a tempter. Uh, Matthew 4, Thessalonians 3. He is a deceiver. We saw him in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, Corinthians, Revelation. His his very name, as I said, means accuser and adversator. One of his other names, the devil, means slanderer. So he slanders, he accuses, he tempts. He does all of those, of those things. But he's only doing this for a time. Revelations 20.10 says, There's coming a day when he will be thrown into the lake of fire and there he'll be tormented forever and ever. There's coming a day when he's it's over. But for a certain time, he is allowed to operate this world. And we'll talk next week about how much authority he has to touch you or to, 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 to do things to you. And we'll talk about that uh, next week. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down uh, in it. Now... Again, you've got to remember, this is written 3,500 years ago. It's written in Old Hebrew. Sometimes it's hard to, to figure things out, but it looks like he's boasting here. It's really what it looks like in the language. He, he's saying, hey, I've been, I've been walking up and down my kingdom, just checking things out, right? You remember when he, uh, in, in uh, Matthew 4 when he tempts Jesus, he takes him up on the high mountain and he, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you'll worship me, I'll give them to you. In other words, he thinks this is really mine to give. I, I'm in control. This is my, my kingdom. So he, he kind of answers God in this boasting way. Well, I've been walking around my kingdom, you know, look, checking things out, you know, and seeing all of this. And God says this to him in verse 8. In response to that, he says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you seen Job? Now I want you to notice, the devil doesn't bring Job up. God does. God introduces him into the... And God knows exactly what's going to happen. He, have you considered my servant Job? Man, there's nobody like him on the earth. A blameless man, an upright man, who fears God and turns away from, from evil. So the very same thing the author said in the very first verse, God repeats. Says, so these are the words of God. And we're going to, I'm going to show you in a, morning, in a minute just how important this is. Have you noticed Job? Have you seen him? I want to give you one final thought here before we before we close. This is God's pronouncement of Job's character. Okay? Job one eight. I want you to imprint that verse in your in your in your brain. I want you to remember it for this whole study. This is what God Himself thinks about Job. You see, as we get past these first two chapters, we're going to see a lot of people talking. Job's friends come over to commiserate with him, and they, they do a lot of talking. And, and, and Job is going to do a lot of talking. But everything we hear is going to be colored by the opinion of the speaker, right? Job himself it will talk about himself. But it's, it, it's his opinion. It's, co- it's based on his prejudices and his biases and his knowledge, yes? His friends will make a lot of statements. But again, it's their opinions. It's based on their prejudices and their biases and their knowledge and their ignorance, what they know and what they don't know. All of these things we'll have to, we'll have to deal with. There's only one place in this book where we have a truly objective viewpoint about how, who Job really is. Who is he really at his very heart? And God said, he really is blameless. God says, I look at him and I got nothing against him. Nothing at all. He is a righteous, blameless, upright man. He, he, he fears God and he shuns evil. No matter what his friends say later, that's what God says about him. So here's the point I want to close with. If at any point in this study you are tempted to question Job's integrity, if any point in this study you are tempted to think, man, nobody could be that good, He's got to be self-righteous. If at any point any of those thoughts start coming to you and thinking, boy, Job's got to deserve a little bit of this, I want you to understand you're not questioning Job. You're questioning God. This is exactly what Job's friends... They didn't hear this statement from God, right? They didn't see what was going on in heaven. So they're going to come to Job and they're going to say, what did you do wrong? Admit it. You've got some secret sin in your life somewhere. God said, no, he don't. I got nothing against him. He's absolutely blameless. He is unique. He's not every man. He's different. So if we just if we decide at some point, if you feel those thoughts entering in to try to somehow figure out why this happened to Job, what did he do, I want you to go back to Job 1 and 8 and realize it's not Job you're questioning. You're questioning God because God said he really is uh, different. Next week, We'll look at verses 8 through 22, uh, which is the first test. Job has to go through two tests. We'll see the first one next week in verses 8 through 22. Let's pray.